Amen. Uh, let me invite you to take God's Word and turn to the Gospel according to Mark, uh, chapter number 1, as we continue our journey with Mark through the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will focus on two verses here this morning. Uh, Wednesday, this upcoming Wednesday, uh, June the 6th, we'll mark 74 years um, of one of the most important events in human history. At 6.30 a.m. on the morning of June the 6th, 1944, Allied forces crossed the English Channel and landed on a 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified coast along the beaches of Normandy, France. Codenamed Operation Overlord, uh, it was the largest amphibious military operation in history as over 6,000 landing crafts, ships, and vessels, 13,000 paratroopers, over 176,000 soldiers, and 13 aircrafts invaded enemy territory in order to liberate Western Europe from Nazi control. And even though Allied forces suffered great casualties, most of which happened on Omaha, they were able to take the beachheads. They were able to take the beaches, establish a front, and work their way across Europe and eventually liberate a, a people who had been held under the tyranny of Adolf Hitler. The invasion was a success, and it goes down as one of the greatest invasions in world history. But Operation Overlord was not the greatest invasion in human history. The greatest invasion in human history took place 2,000 years ago. It did not involve military troops. It involved one man. It did not take place on the beaches of Normandy, France, but it took place in the wilderness in Judea. It did not lead to the liberation of a nation from the tyranny of Adolf Hitler, but it led to the liberation of his people from the tyranny of the domain of darkness. And it took place just after the freshly anointed Son of God was baptized and led into the wilderness. For there he faced Satan in the greatest battle in history. And we read about it here in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Scripture says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, verses 12 and 13 of Mark 1 conclude the introduction to Mark's gospel. Mark told us in verse 1 what the subject of his gospel is. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have seen that the subject of Mark's gospel has been announced by John the Baptist in verses 2 through 9. The forerunner comes. He prepares a people for the Messiah to get them ready. He announces that there is one coming. And then we see that Jesus, the Son of God, is anointed by the Spirit. He goes out into the wilderness. 
is baptized by John in the Jordan River. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, anointing him as Israel's king, showing that he is the one with whom the Father is pleased. And there's even an acknowledgement of Jesus as the Son of God from the Father. The heavens open up and the voice from heaven declares, This is my Son. With you I am well pleased. Reminiscent of the second psalm where the Lord would say of the King of Israel, You are my Son today. Have I begotten you? And now as we come to verse 12 and 13, we see that the one who was announced by John, anointed by the Spirit, and acknowledged by the Father, is going to be approved by testing. This event in the life of Christ is the event that we sometimes refer to as the temptation in the wilderness. It is also recorded in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel account. And to be honest with you, we're probably much more familiar with what Mark and Luke say about the temptation than we are about what Mark says about the temptation. Luke and Matthew devote large chunks to the temptation. Mark gives us two verses. And in true Mark fashion, he speaks through the temptation, not because it's not important, but just because that's how the Holy Spirit inspired him and because he highlights certain aspects of the temptation that are crucial. I mean, when you read verses 12 and 13, especially if you are familiar with the other temptation accounts, you notice that there are several things missing. Uh, you notice that Mark's account is very, very brief, just two verses. There is no threefold temptation like the other gospel accounts. You don't find a dialogue between Satan and Jesus with Satan tempting Christ with, if you are the Son of God, and Jesus referring back and answering back with, it is written. There's no mention of Jesus fasting for 40 days in Mark. Mark just tells us he was in the wilderness for 40 days. There is no mention of Satan leaving Jesus alone, like in Matthew and in Luke. And so we look at Mark, we see its brevity, and we see that although it's short, it doesn't mean it's not significant. And although it's less detailed, it doesn't mean it is less important. And I think it's really important for us to look at why Mark describes it this way, why he is so brief, and why he includes what he includes. Because this is crucial to the rest of Mark. Because what Mark does in verses 12 through 13 is he's going to paint a picture of a spiritual battle that's going to take place in verses 12 and 13. It's not going to end in verses 12 and 13, but it's going to branch out and it's going to be fought throughout the book of Mark. What he has here in verses 12 and 13 is just a, a microcosm of the rest of Mark. It's a snapshot of what is going to unfold throughout the rest of the battle. And so what he does here is he's going to show us insights into Christ's battle that he has with Satan, but also he's going to give us a glimpse of what our battle is like as we battle against the same foe. And we fight against the same enemy. And by watching our king do battle with the forces of evil, we will stand a better chance of coming out victorious when we have to face the same enemy if we'll keep some things in mind. 
when I come to this passage, I want you to see that as you battle Satan, you've got to understand some things. First, you've got to understand that submission leads to confrontation. Submission leads to confrontation. Now, Mark does follow the chronology of Matthew and Luke in that the temptation immediately follows the baptism and the declaration. Uh, And it immediately precedes Jesus' public ministry. And so what you have is you have the baptism of Jesus and the Father's acknowledgement of Jesus. And then you have Jesus launching out into public ministry, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And in between those two events, you have Jesus in the wilderness doing battle with Satan for 40 days. Now, what does this tell us about our battles? Well, first I want you to see that our battles are divine appointments. They are divine appointments. Look in verse 12. It says, the spirit immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, drove him out into the wilderness. Now that is a picture in and of itself. The phrase drove him out is crucial. That word is one of Mark's favorites. It's used 18 times in the book of Mark to refer specifically to casting out devils, or 12 times. 12 times in Mark's gospel, that Greek word that's translated drove him out here is used to describe Jesus casting out devils, forcefully removing devils. It's also used to describe Jesus. Whenever he went to the temple and he saw the money changers, and the Bible says he drove them out of the temple, well, that's the same word here. But notice the person who is active in this. Who is driving? Scripture says the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. It doesn't mean he nudged him. doesn't mean he bumped him. But it means he forcefully moved Jesus to go out into the wilderness. What for? For a showdown. For a battle with Satan. Beloved, listen. The same spirit who anointed Jesus king in the previous verses is the same spirit who drives Jesus out to be tested in verses 12 through 13. And it is a beautiful picture of what happens with God's king. You remember what happened with King David in the Old Testament? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, Samuel comes with the oil and he anoints David king. And the Bible says the Spirit of God came upon David from that day forward. Immediately after David is anointed king, do they celebrate? Do they have a meal? Do they have a feast? What happens immediately after David is anointed king? You come to 1 Samuel 17, the most familiar event in the life of King David, where he goes down into the valley of Elah, and there he faces the enemy of God's people and defeats the enemy. Well, the same thing is going on here in Mark. Jesus is anointed king. And the Spirit now drives him into the wilderness where he is going to face the ultimate foe of God's people, the ultimate enemy, and his name is Satan. Listen, there are some people who think that if you follow the Spirit, everything in your life is going to be easy. It's going to be a cakewalk from here to glory. There's not going to be any hiccups along the way, any road bumps along the way. But listen to me. If you follow the Spirit of 
God. You have to know that there are times he will lead you straight to the forefront of the battle. That's exactly what he does here with Jesus. And so this battle was a divine appointment from heaven. But we also need to understand that we battle on Satan's turf. This is why I refer to it as an invasion. This is an invasion. Jesus is invading Satan's territory. The Bible says that he drove him out into the wilderness. Verse 12 says that he was with the wild animals. Now, Matthew and Luke don't mention the animals. Why Mark? Well, if you were here in the first sermon, I told you one of the reasons is probably because Mark writes his gospel account to Rome, to Roman believers. And he writes to them in the midst of intense persecution. Nero, Rome had burned. Nero had blamed the, the Christians. And part of the persecution that Nero inflicted upon believers was that he would tie them up in wild animal skins, put them in the Colosseum, and turn wild beasts loose on them. And people would watch as Christians were devoured and eaten up by wild animals in the Colosseum. And so when Mark writes this, it's almost as if he is saying this to the believers. Hey, don't worry. Don't fret. Jesus knows what you're going through. He stared down wild beasts before as well. He's been where you are at. That's one reason. But another reason is a theological reason, if you will. It's because it shows us that Jesus goes out to battle on Satan's home turf. Because when you read the Old Testament, when you read about the blessings of God on a place, it's always inhibited. It's always bringing forth blessing and bringing forth fruit. And there's always a mention of no ravenous beast being around. That's the blessings of God. Ezekiel 34, 12, speaking of God's blessing, said, There shall be no more, they will no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beast of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. There God was saying in the Old Testament that in the land there's no beast. There's nothing that will make you fearful. God's blessing's there. But on the flip side, uninhabited wilderness, ravenous beasts, animals that you're supposed to have dominion over, striking terror into your heart. That is a reminder of a sin-cursed world. And so what do we see here? We see Jesus going out into the uninhabited Wilderness, facing animals on Satan's territory. Um, you know, that is something we have to keep in mind as we do battle. And that is what? We are fighting on Satan's turf. The scripture says this, that he is the prince of the power of the air. Scripture says that he is the God, little g, of this world, of this present age. And so the battle that you are in, the battle that I am in, is conducted on his turf. It's on his terms, if you will. He has the home field advantage as he uses the world, the flesh, and everything else to allure us. Just before Allied forces launched uh, Operation Overlord, Eisenhower sent a message to the troops. And in that message, he said this of his enemy. He said, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. You know, people fight harder 
to protect their home turf, uh, whether it's in sports, whether it's just, you know, uh, I guarantee you, you will fight harder to keep somebody breaking in your house than you will somebody breaking in somebody else's house. That's just the way we are. And so as we battle, we are battling Satan. And the same thing Eisenhower said of Nazi Germany, we could say the same thing of our enemy, could we not? Because he is what? He's well-trained. Listen, he's been doing this for a long, long time. He's been battling since Eden. He's well-equipped. He's got culture. He's got the flesh. He's got all the things of the world at his disposal to use against us. He's battle-hardened. It doesn't matter how many times he's been defeated. He will not quit. He perseveres. He returns. He comes back again. And he will fight savagely. Peter put it this way. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, seeks, walks about seeking whom he may devour. So know this, that as we battle Satan in this world, we are battling on his turf. He has the home field advantage. And like Jesus, we need to see that our battles are private. This battle that Jesus conducts here is a private one. It is one that no one else sees. There is no, there's no onlookers. There's no crowd. No one there to encourage. No one there to, to lift him up. No. Jesus goes out there and this is private. Really. Where do most of your battles take place with Satan? In the public square? Not really. No, it's in the privacy of our heart, of our mind, in our emotions, in our wills, in our thoughts. That's where we battle Satan. And most of the time, most of the time, most public failures are just the culmination of many private failures. And so here Jesus goes out to face Satan privately, one-on-one. On one. And don't be dis discouraged. Don't be surprised when there are times when you feel like you've gone 13 rounds with the devil in an eight-round fight, that it's about to wear you out. And you are battling him when you wake up, battling him when you go to bed. That battle should not shock us. Because listen, when you trust Christ, you don't just get a free ticket from earth to glory. You enlist in a war. It is a battle. And many of the battles are going to be fought privately, internally. But our battles prove us because the Bible says he was there 40 days. Now the word the, the 40 is key throughout all of scripture. But 40 days brings to mind many different situations and many different events in the Bible. Moses was on the Mount Sinai. How many days? 40 days. Noah, when God sent the flood, how many days did it rain? It rained for 40 days. When Joshua, or when they, Moses sent the spies to spy out the land of Canaan, how long did it take them to spy out the land? 40 days. And by the way, they failed so marvelously in that that God said, you're going to spend a year in the wilderness for every day you were gone. So 40 days equals 40 years you're going to wander in the wilderness. Elijah, running from Queen Jezebel, trying to save his own life after the greatest accomplishment of his life, 
was in cave. He was at, in the wilderness of Horeb for how many days? 40 days. And here is Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days, a time of testing, a time where he is going to be proved. And do you know that the Bible tells us that it is our trials that prove us? It is our trials that reveal our faith, what it is like. Adrian Rogers always said that a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. You know, people who have never experienced anything, people who have never gone through anything, um, their, their, their faith oftentimes doesn't really know, what, they don't really know whether or not their faith will hold up. But you find someone who's been through the battles, who's been through the struggles, who's, who's had heartache, who's, who's battled sickness, who has dealt with disappointment in life, and their faith has held up strong. You look at them and you know that they have been proved through their battles. But Jesus goes out, and he goes out to be tempted by Satan. Now, unlike Matthew and Luke, he doesn't tell us what he tempts Satan with. Now, this will be the only part in Mark that I'm going to kind of skip out and use the other two accounts because I think Mark specifically keeps it brief for a purpose. But we know what Satan said to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If, 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 if you are the son of God, if you will worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. If you're the son of God, cast yourself down and cause you'll give angels charge over you and they'll rescue you before you fall. That's what he's doing. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. And do you know, one of the things when you look at what Satan tempted Jesus with, it wasn't three separate temptations. It was one temptation that he, had, <laughs> he tried to use against Jesus on three separate occasions. And you know what the temptation was? Don't suffer. That's the temptation. The temptation was, I don't care if you want a, crown, if you want a crown. I'll give you a crown. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everything. Just don't suffer. Don't go to the cross. Are you hungry? Use your power to satisfy yourself. Don't suffer. Beloved, Satan knew that the suffering of the Son of God would be the crushing of his head. He did not want Jesus to suffer. And so here's what he's doing. He's saying to Jesus in the wilderness, I can give you a crown without a cross. <laughs> I can give you a throne without trouble. I can give you an easy path to glory if you'll just do it. You won't have to suffer. He didn't tempt him with sex. He did not tempt him with stealing. He did not tempt him with lying, with murder, or envy. In fact, John Piper said those games are what sub-devils play with weak saints. The great temptation is to escape suffering. To get out of it because Satan loves to use suffering to tempt the people of God. Have you ever had him use suffering against you? Have you ever had him come up and whisper something in your ear, something along these lines? If you are a child of the king, why are you struggling? I mean, Kate's kids live like princes, not paupers. If you're a child of the king, why do you have more bills than money? 
not the way you're supposed to live if you're a child of the king. If you're a child of the king, why are you taking cancer treatments? Children of the king, they, 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 they don't get cancer. They don't suffer. They don't have sickness. They don't do those things. If you're a child of the king, why are you struggling? If you're a child of the king, why do you have diabetes? Why do you have arthritis? If you're a child of the king, why'd your loved one die? I mean, who would put you through that? Huh. Have you ever had Satan say something like that to you? Listen to me. Satan knows that's the way to get into our heart and our mind and to get us to think that God's not good. That's the only card he's got. When Satan tempts you with sex, what he's saying to you is, God's way is not good. When he tempts you with stealing, what he's saying, what God has given to you is not enough because God's not been good. It's the only playbook in his arsenal. It is to ask us, is God really good? Why did Adam eat of the fruit of the tree? It's because Satan tempted him to think that God wasn't good. God was holding out on him. God was holding something back good for him. And he ate of the fruit. Beloved, I promise you this. I don't know what temptation you're going to face this week, this month, or for the rest of your life. But I promise you, you are going to be tempted by Satan to think that in some area of your life, God's not been good to you. That's what he does. And he's going to try in every way of the world to get you to, to doubt God, to even doubt who you are. Do you, if you ever struggle with wondering whether or not you're a child of God, you battle with assurance all the time. I wonder where that battle comes from. And then I thought, if Satan is gloriously stupid enough to try and get Jesus to doubt he's the son of God, how much more will he try and convince us that we're not children of God? Or if you are the son of God, Satan knows he's the son of God. He was with him in eternity. He knows it. And yet he still attempted to cause doubt and confusion. And he will do the same with us. But know this, our battles Prove us because there is nothing like battling with Satan and then trusting in the Spirit and then coming forth stronger at the end than you were in the beginning. Our battles prove us and our battle is ongoing. Matthew and Luke tell us what at the end of the temptation that Satan left him alone and then the angels came and ministered to him. But Mark doesn't. Now that doesn't mean that the devil didn't leave him but Mark purposely doesn't tell us that Satan left him. He gives us the idea that it is ongoing. It's not a one battle and it's over with. But what we see is what starts in the wilderness with the temptation carries out throughout the rest of Mark. This is not the war. This is the opening battle. This is the opening scene. And the war plays itself out on different fronts throughout the gospel of Mark. And what you find is, you find Jesus confronting the same devil in many different settings. That same battle takes place in many different ways. There are times when Jesus will cast out demons. What's he doing? He is fighting Satan. The battle is still going on. 
But then there are times Satan looks a little bit different. It's not a demoniac who cuts himself up in the mountains. No, but it's a religious Pharisee who has a tradition of washing his hands all the time. And so what does Jesus have to do with him? Jesus has to rebuke them, and he has to rebut religious tradition. What is that? Well, that's a battle in the same war. It looks a little bit differently, but it is the same war, a different battle. Jesus will face governmental persecution all the way to a cross. What is that about? It's the same war that we see started here in in verses 12 and 13. As a matter of fact, Jesus lets his disciples in on a little secret in Mark 8. The Bible says he tells them that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be crucified, and then he is going to be raised again to life. And the disciples hear this. And you know the only thing that they hear out of what Jesus said? He's going to be crucified. Now, they have a a category for the Messiah. And crucifixion doesn't fit in that category. Messiahs Messiahs don't die. Messiahs aren't crucified. Messiahs overthrow kingdoms and a Messiah is that stone cut without hands in the book of Daniel that comes and crushes all the other kingdoms of this world. That's Messiah. And so when Peter hears, I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die, he does the craziest thing. I mean, he's done some stupid things in his life, but this one's the craziest of all. The Bible says he started rebuking Jesus. He says, that's never going to happen to you. No. No. Messiahs don't suffer on crosses. You know what Jesus said? Peter, you don't know what's going on. Is that what he said? No, it's not, is it? No. He looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Wow. Now, was Peter incarnate with Satan at the time? No. Did Satan enter Peter like he entered Judas' chariot? No. But what we see Jesus doing here is Jesus is looking at this event with the big picture in mind. He sees what's going on. It's not Peter rebuking him about going to the cross. No, he's facing a temptation from Satan again. And Satan is using Peter as his tool to tempt Christ not to suffer and go to the cross. Listen, how much so should we view our battles in the same way. Listen, when we battle a bad boss, a a, a co-worker, someone who doesn't like us, when we battle against other people in this world, do we battle against them or are we battling against Satan? Well, my mind, my heart, my scripture tells me I'm battling against Satan, but you know how I oftentimes feel about it? I feel oftentimes it's against them. And Paul wants us to understand that we have to look at our battles differently because he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not against an individual. It's not against a person. No, there's a battle going on behind the scenes. And the behind the scenes battle is the kingdom of Christ battling against the forces of evil in this world on Satan's turf. And this battle is ongoing. Jesus does not just win the battle in verses 12 and 13 and then Satan leave him alone. No, the battle continues and you and I are in an ongoing battle. And may we never forget it and may we never let down our 
guard. Because we know that submission leads to confrontation. It's Christ's submission to the Spirit that led to this showdown. But we also must understand that strength comes from heaven. We know that in the midst of our battles, he sends us into battle, and then he battles with us, in us, through us, and for us. You see, when we battle, we can be assured that we have the presence of heaven with us. Now, it looks in verses 12 and 13 that Jesus is alone, but he's not alone. There's, he's not alone. In fact, who was it that drove him into the wilderness? It was the Spirit, and the Spirit is with him. The Father is watching over him. And in fact, the Bible says angels were ministering to him. Now, there may not have been another human presence there. But I promise you, the presence of heaven was there. He was not alone. And know this, beloved, that you never battle alone. You always battle, even if there's no other human being around, you have the presence of heaven with you always in the midst of your battles. You have the one who endured the wilderness 2,000 years ago going through the wilderness with you right now. Uh, the other day, I brought Lily with me up to church, up to my office, and I was working. And, and uh, I always, whenever I get finished, I always turn off all the lights. And, and uh, she was back in the Sunday school room, and I turned off all the lights. And I told her, I said, come on, let's go. And I flipped the lights off in here. I wasn't thinking. Flipped the lights off in here, and it was dark in the hallway and dark in the sanctuary. And no lights in the foyer. And I was standing in the foyer, and I could hear her running through the hallway Hollering, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And she came in and she stopped and she started almost crying. And uh, it was dark in here and I thought, she thinks I'm gone. And so I opened the door and she looked at me. She said, Daddy, I thought you left me. <laughs> and I said, Lily, have I ever left you? No, but I thought you were gone. <laughs> she didn't get my point. <laughs> and I finally told her, I said, baby... Daddy's never left you by yourself in the dark, and I'm not going to start. And then I said, whoa, wait a minute. That'll preach. <laughs> because there are times when we're in the battle, we feel like Lily, surrounded by darkness. We think we're all alone. And yet our Father Here's every step we take, and he is right there where we are at. And the good news is, when I feel like I've been deserted by him, I need to remind myself and ask myself this question. Has he ever left me yet? And the answer is no. And will he ever leave me? The answer is no. He will not. When we battle, we have the presence of heaven with us. And when we battle, we have the power of heaven with us as well. The Bible says the angels were ministering to him. We know that Jesus was hungry. And we know that when uh, he faced Satan, that the angels came then and they ministered to him. Most commentators believe that they brought him food. And they provided food for him to eat. But whatever it was that he needed. I, in, in some way, I'm glad it doesn't tell us for sure what they brought Jesus or how they served Jesus or how they ministered to Jesus because there are times that I'm weak and I need more than a Big Mac. 
There are times that I'm weak and I don't need food. There are times when I'm weak, I need something more than that to get me through it. And this tells me that I can rest assured that whenever I'm weak, whenever I'm frail, that heaven will meet my needs in the midst of my battles. Beloved, listen. Rest assured. If the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness for conflict with the enemy, then he's going to drive us into the wilderness for conflict. And if Jesus faced temptation, you and I will face temptation. And if Jesus is tested, you and I will be tested. If Jesus was strengthened by heaven, you and I will be strengthened by heaven. And if Jesus overcame by relying on the Spirit of God and the Word of God, then you and I will overcome our battles by relying on the Spirit of God and on the Word of God. And while it may look as if we are battling in an uninhabited land with wild beasts, as Paul would say, I fought with the beast of Ephesus, and sometimes we wonder if we will ever get through this particular battle. We can know and rest assured that there is going to come a day when we will fight our final battle. And then we will know what victory is all about. You know, there are times the church needs to be reminded that she's in a battle. Um, the battle is, <laughs> the, the church is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship, Adrian Rogers says, <laughs> And there are times we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded in sermons. We need to be reminded in books. We need to be reminded in songs. This morning as we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based on the 46th Psalm and the Revelation 12, I think greatest hymn, greatest Christian song ever written. It is a reminder of the battle that we are in. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote it. Some debate the exact time when he wrote it, but most believe he wrote it around 1527. During that time, the Black Plague was sweeping across Europe again. The Reformation was in its infancy. The church was being persecuted by the Catholic, uh, by the Catholic church. Christians were being burned at the stake, being called uh, heretics, and they were giving up their life for the cause of Christ. Some doubted, some worried, some fretted. And then Luther wrote this hymn as a reminder to us. We shouldn't be shocked when we find ourselves in the midst of skirmishes. Because after all, we are in a battle. But our mindset should be this. We battle from victory, not for victory. I read this passage again this week and then I read the lyrics of A Mighty Fortress again and I know we sang it earlier but I want you to think of Jesus battling Satan I want you to think of the, the lyrics of that great hymn Luther wrote if we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing we're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing you ask who this may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same. And he must win 
the battle. And though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Listen, the prince of darkness grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Then he says, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. This body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. No matter what battles we face here, we have been assured victory because Jesus endured the battle, won the victory, and now the victory is ours. So today, are you battling? Are you in the midst of a war? Do you feel like you are on the front lines of the hottest battle that you have ever been in your life? Well, if so, rest assured you're not battling alone. Brothers and sisters are here with you on the front lines. But even when we are not near you or around you, you have the presence of heaven with you. A father who is one, one footstep away in the darkness, standing there for you. And know this, that no matter what it is you face, his grace is sufficient for you in the midst of your weakness. And his strength and power is made perfect in us while we are weak. So rely on him. Trust in him. Believe in him. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are no match for Satan. You are no match for the demons of hell. You are no match for the foe that holds you in the grip of his tyranny, making you think you're free, making you think you're your own person, Making you think that you do what you want to do, you live the way you want to live, and that, that you are free. You're not. You are in the grips of Satan himself. And you need to be released. And thank God 2,000 years ago, Jesus invaded enemy territory, defeated them on the cross and at an empty tomb. And he says, as I live, you can live also. And you can be victorious today if you will trust in Christ for your salvation. Let's pray.